Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Adult Learning Programme Manager here. So I'm delighted to introduce this afternoon's panel discussion, which forms part of our International Women's Day celebrations, with a series of events this year exploring the theme of feminist futures. This afternoon's panel and final event in the International Women's Day programme focuses on moving image. It will examine the capacity of filmmaking as a tool to challenge and rewrite conventional structures found in society today and explore the significance of moving image in the context of contemporary feminism, political struggle and emancipation. Chairing today's panel, I'm delighted to introduce Badisha, who is a British journalist, critic and broadcaster for the BBC, Channel 4 and Sky. She specialises in international human rights, social justice, gender and the arts and offers political analysis and cultural diplomacy tying these interests together. She has also just direct directed her first film, An Impossible Poison, which premiered in London at the Royal Albert Hall on Wednesday. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Badisha, who will introduce the rest of our panel for today's event. Thank you. Thank you for that very generous introduction. I'm sorry I couldn't quite crane my neck around to, 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 to see you. Um, hello and welcome to this Royal Academy Moving Image Practices panel discussion on feminist futures as we close out International Women's Day week. I'm honoured to welcome our panellists, Shutapa Biswas, Zaidi Shah and Jessie Jetpacks, who I'll introduce in greater detail in just a moment. We will have around half an hour for a discussion led by me, and overhead you'll see some slides featuring stills and images of our work. Then we're delighted to introduce some short two-minute screenings of the panelists' films. After that, we would love to hear from you. Please keep your questions and comments brief, just so we can hear from as many people as possible. A short preamble first. A lot of the commentary this week has focused on women's global activism around liberation from endemic violence, violation, harassment and discrimination, and against the impunity and excusal of perpetrators. Today, however, we're taking that desire for change and we're applying it, applying it to the art world, to film and to the moving image. We're asking if changing the method of working changes the political structure, and if changing the narrative changes the message. How can we embody political change through the stories that we tell, the way we create work, the way we recruit colleagues and collaborators, the cultural influences we tap into, the way we conduct our process, the other artists we look to for inspiration, and the way in which we guide and form our careers? As artists who work with film and the moving image, can we take the power into our own hands and dismantle or undercut machismo and patriarchal values? and the capitalist impulses they so often accompany, like individualism, competitiveness, the profit motive, the desire to gain exceptional fame and wealth as a result of our endeavors. Exploring these issues, we have three vital, international, hugely successful artists with us today. All of them work globally, and although we might be talking about gender today, all of them integrate multiple references and signifiers in an intersectional way, and I'm hoping that'll be reflected in our conversation too. Right next to me we have Zadie Shah, who was born in Canada, currently lives in London, and is a graduate of the Royal College of Art and the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design. 
Through bright and energetic performance, video, painting, and textiles, she examines her experience within the East Asian diaspora. Her intricate hand-sewn fabric work stitches together familiar symbols of yin-yangs, knives, lucky numbers, and eyes, exaggerated motifs which are used to satirize, combat, engage with, and undercut stereotypes. Next to her, we have Jessie Jetpacks, who studied at Winchester and works across video, digital work, virtual reality, music, and 3D printing. Her work is poignant, punchy, and engaging, offering a darkly comic political critique of everything from contemporary poverty to online popular culture and modern relationships, combining motion, imagery, and great music. In 2017, she collaborated with, with HTC Vive on Virtually Real, creating works of art in virtual reality, which were then brought to life through 3D printing. And next to her, we have Shrutabha Biswas, who was born in India and studied at Leeds, the Slade School of Art and the Royal College of Art. She produces her beautiful, thoughtful, and exquisite works in a wide range of media, including installation, film, and video, drawing, and painting. Since the mid-1990s, she's been interested in exploring themes of time, gender, identity, and desire in relationship to space and wider systems of knowledge and power. So we have an extremely eminent panel with us today. Without further ado, I have a, a very simple opening question for all of you. In the last few months, we've been talking a lot about uh, raising feminist awareness when it comes to inequality and abuse and structural barriers to advancement in film and art and in all sorts of industries. How have you felt those issues relate to you as artists who are following your own practice? Um, should have, if I come to you. Uh, thank you, um, and thank you for the uh, very wonderful introduction. Um, I think, without doubt, it, there, there is a very serious impact in terms of how patriarchal culture has has affected industry within the arts right across the board. Um, in terms of my own absorption as an artist working with a range of media, what I I think my work is about spatial stories and the kinds of spatial stories that I tell. Um, in the context of my practice has often been to look at the voices of women um, within our culture, within different communities, um, and to really reflect upon the kinds of experiences and stories and histories that these women have um, experienced or have to tell. So for me, I try to uh, intervene, if you like, in a way that brings to light the very kinds of voices that otherwise are written out of history, erased and suppressed within our culture. And do you feel that when you bring voice to the voiceless, that there is in fact a sort of an accepting audience, that they are being seen and heard? Yes, I do, and, and often surprisingly so. Um, I think that, that, that my work's quite poetic, really, in the sense that uh, although I'm very um, influenced by my interest in art history, in literature, in poetry, um, as well as in, you know, grand narratives of history, what I try to do is kind of open up spaces that allow the viewer somehow to have quite a visceral relationship to the work that I make. And I'm very conscious of those kinds of things being affected, both in the process of, of making work, the editing process, and also the installation. So I do think that that does happen, that 
women are often surprised. Recently, to give you a quick example, in Japan I was making a, a work called Matinee where I interviewed older generation Japanese women. And they were really extraordinary uh, because they spoke about how it felt, for example, um, to, uh, to go through the rites of receiving kimono, their first kimono, um, which is a rite of passage for both Japanese and women and men. And they did this in the post-World War II you know, bombing of Hiroshima, basically, and Nagasaki. And they talked about these things for the first time on film, on digital format. And in addition to that, they discussed the context of their experiencing childbirth, which is within the Japanese context, is almost unheard of. And during the exhibition, it was really extraordinary to see the older Japanese women who they were watching it sitting on the floor, and at one point, somebody who was quite hard of hearing, she must have been in her late 70s, literally, as she was listening to this, crawled across the floor to actually get closer to the screen in order to register that she was hearing what she was hearing. And she sat through this twice. So I think that that's a very good example, and it was such a beautiful thing to witness, actually. Jesse, let me bring you in here. We've been talking about the connection between what's happening politically in terms of the discourse and the way you pursue your own work. The last work that I made in, in January was um, a, a sort of replica of um, this prehistoric cave. And in, I filled it with um, drawings of beasts and predators from the time based on these original, like, 30,000-year-old artworks. But I also put some, like, Harvey Weinstein pigs in there and some of the the more recently um, talked about predators. And I thought, I think it, I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about the work, um, like how it balanced what I was thinking when I did it, but it's more um, that I was trying to rest that, uh, introduce a sense of humor about the responsibility of the artists, as in, um, you know, these predators are no surprise. It's like this m revelation somehow that they exist, but, you know, they're as old as time. We all know about it. So, um, the humor that I was trying to introduce to that work, like a balancing of the tragedy and the pathos of an artist being tasked with commenting on society, and also um, the sort of madness of trying to recreate a cave or recreate history. I think that's uh, something that I tend to do feeling like my inherited culture is uh, you know, not, not that clearly delineated, like where I stand and what I use. Can we talk a little bit about responsibility? Why should it be an artist's responsibility that every time something happens in the outer world, the political world, that we're supposed to turn around, go back to the studio, and then sort of suddenly produce a, a commentary on it? Well, yeah, and especially as a, as a woman, um, it's like this idea that, of course, that's going to be on your mind, but I don't like the assumption, and I think the request is going to produce a belligerence, you know, in myself because that's how I work, and it's not—it doesn't so much come from a sense of powerlessness, but a real recognition of what a power is. As in, you know, for me, I find humour very powerful, but um, I'm happy with it being my immediate sphere. I'm happy with, like you were saying about ambitions towards genius, they seem very distasteful to me. Uh, Zadie, you've been incredibly uh, patient hearing the other two. How do you feel about that necessary or, or sort of expected connection between all of the issues and the consciousness raising that happens in the political sphere and your own practice? Well, um, you know, I definitely think about those things in my personal life, uh, but I don't necessarily 
react to those things immediately in my work. I try to think about things in a more holistic manner. And just speaking to the first question that you asked, I find it really important to support other um, you know, fellow women artists, uh, non-binary and um, trans friends that I have. And actually, my you know, very modest success in London in the art world has been uh, due primarily to women and queer women of color really supporting me and offering me um, the opportunities to show. It's been very rare that it's male curators or gallerists that have been interested to speak with me. It's almost always exclusively been people of color and women. Uh, can we expand on that a little bit? Because we had been talking in our pre-show discussion about how it's a very sort of very wide-bottom hierarchy of power that on the one hand you feel as though the art world is actually incredibly diverse in many different ways. There are lots of people who are supporting you and yet it's almost as though power is happening in the next room along. So you open the door and there's Jeff Koons getting $100 million for something and you think, hang on, I had no idea that actually the real power and money is happening in the other room while we all feel we're having an amazing time supporting each other in some other tier. Well, I think for me and you know the small group of friends that I have who I am really lucky to have and they're also artists, we complain and talk about this and try to support each other as much as possible. So if we um, hear about an exhibition that one is having and we feel that uh, the artist fee that they're receiving is not enough because maybe I previously did a show there and I knew that someone else that happened to be, you know, a man got more money, we will inform each other of those things and really offer kind of the support to feel empowered to go back to the table and say, no, this isn't good enough, which you know can be really intimidating. It's intimidating for me, but I'm really lucky where I have a solid group of friends who we look out for each other, and I you know, constantly support one another. I promote their events and vice versa, and that's really, I think, the fundamental issue for me in terms of kind of affecting things through art and through structural changes, you know, allowing people who might not always have the economic means to be able to have the opportunity to exhibit or show their work, which will eventually lead to other opportunities. I mean, it really is important that women empower each other. Uh, Shitofa, let me come to you. We're gonna move on a little bit and talk specifically about the moving image. How do you work with the moving image? Something that was very clear is that you don't define yourselves as being film directors or filmmakers. Mm. Working with the moving image is part of your practice. Mm. How do you relate that to these kind of structural political equality issues that we're talking about? Gosh, that's a really good question, and it's, it's a complex question. Um, yeah, I do, I am an interdisciplinary artist, and I've really come to film um, to, to working with film through my love of painting, actually. And I suppose that as, a, as an undergraduate student, um, I was very fortunate to uh, be part of a, an, a, a course that TJ Clark had set up and had an amazing roll call of, of, of tutors, etc. But one of the, Griselda Pollock, you know, Laura Mulvey, etc. But what, so I was introduced to film, you know, through people like, Laura Mulvey, actually, Riddles of the Sphinx. Very, very yeah. And, exactly. And so, um, but it also um, was interesting to me that uh, in terms of my absorption of art history, you know, the experience of seeing these amazing paintings, uh, you know, whether it was by Turner or Gentileschi, whoever, on almost a cinematic scale. And I think that that took me back to a very early experience when, after I first came to the UK, in London, with my family, where we would actually 
go and see Satyajit Rai films, for example. And I, even though I was, you know, around five or six at the time, it, there's something quite extraordinary when, even if you don't understand the narrative because you're that tiny, but the experience of watching a projected image, you know, crossing a beautiful big space and throwing up images of, um, you know, brown people, basically, that you connect with in a culture that is actually quite um, problematic in the sense that everything around you, especially going back to the sort of 60s and 70s where racism in, in Britain was, was, was really very, very evident, you know, on a daily basis. Not that it's hugely different now. So it, it left a real impression with me. And so for me, working between film and drawing and painting has a relationship. On the one hand, working in film, you use a, 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 a process by which something permanent on a film is left as a temporal trace, really. Because when the cinema's over, when the film's over, it goes away. And in a way, drawing is the reverse effect, where a temporal process of mark making leaves something very permanent. And I think that it's that kind of dichotomy between presence and absence, marking territory and space, and being invisible somehow in between those two areas, those two uh, spaces, really, was something that drew me to film. Xavier, uh, I want to bring you in here before we, we come to Jesse on this, because you're nodding at the first at, at talking. Uh, your work is very, very punchy. It's extremely stylish. And something that's really great about this panel is that actually your moving image, image works are very, very different from each other. But how does that connect with you, the idea of the moving image and the possibility of a change within that? Well, I, you know, everything that you were saying, I really resonate with. I actually studied painting for about 10 years before I even began kind of dabbling into performance or moving image. And for me, it was that painting really never allowed me to fully express kind of a, a rounder um, scope of what I was interested in with identity politics. I was constantly referring back to history, thinking about things like Orientalism and I don't know, like uh, Gauguin or something and problematics within, within looking. But actually I thought I need to bring this back towards me and something that I thought, you know, every, Sorry, something that I found um, was missing from my childhood and adolescence was, you know, representation of yellow faces, you know, for lack of a better word. So in my work, I thought, right, so if there's going to be people in this work, in the paintings, they always ended up looking white. Not because I was thinking about whiteness, but I was thinking about classical painting, which is what you study when you study Western painting, right? So I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to make the people look like me because this is actually what I best know and what's reflected um, in the mirror. So, of course, on one hand, it is very political because it's important for me that there are faces like mine that are pushed out there. Because as a young person, I didn't have that. And if I did gravitate towards folks on uh, the television, they'd be African-American because that was the other kind of the inverse of whiteness that was presented in North America. So re regarding moving image, I actually approach it very much like a painter. I make costumes and textile works, which I think of as kind of body paintings that kind of are put on top of the body and thinking about ways in which you can make a painting that moves through space. So that's 
how I uh, approach it as well. And what was the other question? I think that's it. Uh, the possibility of structural change within that, so the way you're creating right. the film, does that go against the way films have been created in the past? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I really felt like a, a like the odd one out when I was invited to do this talk, because I don't consider myself a filmmaker or an expert in this by any means, but I mean, so I don't have too much to say regarding like the history of how things have previously been made, but you know, when I work, I always work collaboratively. I'm always working with a small group of friends who happen to be, you know, folks of color. That's really important to me to allow opportunities and to kind of have a dialogue between other cultural makers that can also help you with practical things and supporting one another. And uh, Jesse, again, you've been very, very patient because these are such wonderful, evocative answers. <laughs> we thought we, we should hear to the end of each thought. Um, your work is really I feel extremely playful and very, very creative in the sense that you also craft and provide music and the score, and that seems to be part, a very strong part of the element of your work, but at the same time, you don't hold back from being satirical, from being very, very engaging in, and direct. And I feel that uh, perhaps you could have something to say on the connection between crafting the moving image and adding in all of those elements and editing it and engaging outwards. Um, well. I think um, very simply that film, moving image, um, immersive digital work and interactive digital work are appealing because my predominant feeling of experiencing society is one of overwhelmment, um, compromise, hypocrisy, complicity. It's just a big malaise of philosophical conundrums and something about making work with a dynamic medium, one that has a time-based element or an immersive-based element, means that you can sort of, not bamboozle, but like layer and layer and layer continuously so many things that by changing tones within one work, you're sort of setting a tone that for me is more um, uh, not representative of the world that I necessarily want to live in, but one that communicates or is experienced in the way that I also experience. So that, you know, there's an inherent um, contradiction, I think, in putting forward any kind of singular viewpoint on anything, even a poetic one, and then leaving space for things in um, still objects or installations, I find quite harder, like I was saying with the cave work, I wasn't sure about the success of it because it was durational with a sound, but it was also very object, and I feel like it's very hard to crammed quite as many contradictions as I want to in there. And I feel like making work in this way um, is illustrative, hopefully, of um, a, a contemporary experience. Uh, we've made it clear that we're, we're slightly dispensing with terms like fine art or the avant-garde. We're trying to find a sort of new language. But could we talk a little bit about the, the output, the way in which the work is displayed? Uh, if you are rejecting the idea of being a filmmaker or a director, are you not also rejecting the idea of you don't care that much about having uh, your film shown as part of a short film festival or in the cinemas? It's part of some sort of other form of display. And so, Jesse, to, just to draw you out a little bit further, is that uh, political in itself? Part of the structural change you want to see is to come away from the big white gallery space, the named cinema hall. Uh, yes, I think in the way that you know uh, politics and how we view it is so often tied to economics and consumerism that of course the way you distribute your work is then um, implicitly political. Um, I think uh, I'm a big fan of open source 
and that's how I, you know, how I get and learn a lot of my technology and skills. And I feel like in some ways it's uh, quite freeing to be able to sort of scattershot the internet with works of mixed quality, mixed success, you know, things that are quite vulnerable in that you might have made them when you were younger and had questionably um, singular ideas. Um, I feel that there's, to me, no harm done in this, although I know people are probably quite rightly afraid of being labelled and having a sort of digital signature being applied to them, you know, like hashtag woman artist, and therefore, you know, it matters if you're successful or not because you're validating a movement. But I think we can do away with a lot of the inherited structures of success. Uh, I'm getting hives at this because my fantasy would be to be sort of in 500 screens of Odeon <laughs> across the country and then phoned up by the Oscars, but fine. We <laughs> Shut up, let's take that same question to you about the idea of the, the avant-garde, the, the unexpected space for transmitting work. Well, I think it's really... I, I'm not really an either-or person, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that, um, you know, for, for me, the aesthetic experience, the intellectual, conceptual experience is unique to, to all of those formats, including the context of the Internet, actually, which I think is, is, is very exciting, you know, to discover work, you know, about... Jesse or whoever it might be, Adrian Piper. So um, I think, uh, and at the same time, I can I, obviously I respect those artists who choose to work in one particular domain or another, you know, kind of institution. Um, I haven't really shown my own work in um, a sort of film festival context because the nature of my practice or the nature of the films I've made are quite immersive. They're very much intended to be shown in a gallery context. And I think that I've been quite particular about the, the, the way in which the lighting is impacted, the space, the seating area. All of those kinds of nuances are really quite important to me. However, I recently did screen a work that's now in, for example, the Tate's collection, Carly, um, recently at the Hyde Park Picture House. And it was, um, along with the filmmaker Pratiba Palmer's, uh, two of her works, and, uh, and Pratiba tends to show her work purely in a sort of cinematic context, if you like. And one of the things that I, I discovered was that I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I was very surprised how much I loved seeing my own, not that I mean it in, a, in, an, in an egotistical way, but I just quite enjoyed seeing it projected in that kind of space. P Hyde Park Picture House is a very kind of beautiful deco building, so I don't know whether that affected it, but subsequently, and in the last two years, I am currently developing um, single screen channel works that have a much more narrative base that I, I'm hoping to submit to the sort of film festival context because I think that it's important to, to break those boundaries, really. Um, Zadie, let me come to you. And I had the same experience at the Royal Albert Hall. With, we're, we were competing with Morrissey, who was performing on the <laughs> stage. But what I discovered, it's, it's really hard to watch your own work on a big screen, particularly if you're acting in it as well. Yeah. But it's very fascinating to watch the audience yes. and see, what see the body language of an audience. It's, absolutely fascinating, seeing them recoil at the right minutes and seeing them not fidget and not look at their phones and you're like, just, that's a win. If you can win against yeah. the draw of the internet, yeah. that's something in its, itself yeah. before they even like or don't like. 
your work with Zadie, let me come to you on that because your work is, again, it's very, very um, consuming, it's very punchy, it's very colourful, but you also have a kind of multimedia aspect. So you have some stuff up on Instagram, you do audio. How do you approach the output of your work? Well, I think similarly, I like to have um, more control over the room of how things are um, installed, displayed, if there are any kind of props or costumes or other sculptures that are shown within um, the space, because I also like to create that kind of immersive world that's really important to me. But actually, I um, went to the ICA a few months ago to watch Martine Sims' um, new, like, first, sorry, um, feature-length uh, film. And I really enjoyed uh, that experience of watching this artist work with a Q&A after, but just kind of like a movie. I feel that I'm a really restless person, and although I also like durational works and video, I also like the idea where I'm not just going in and out because I know I can, and I, I, I can go see that part that I've missed and just leave. So my attention span is actually much more, um, it's more paced and measured, and I feel like I need to invest more in looking, which I thought was really nice when I watched Martine's last film, because I've also experienced her work um, kind of more like video clip montage with, um, you know, set on the monitors in the middle of the space, very much shown like sculptures. But this was a new experience and I really liked it. So I think that probably has something to do with what you were saying. When you watch your work in the cinema, you had a different reaction because it is a different, um, it's, a, it's a different way to look yeah. and observe and, and kind of engage with the work. Yeah. See, you would be banned from one of my screens. You're going to walk in and come in and sit down and go out when you lose interest. No, no, no. I mean, I would. You know, when you go into like an art gallery and you watch a film, you can go in and out because you know it's going to be played on loop. Whereas this, you know, it's like you go in and you sit, and there's no other distractions around you. You know, that's like the etiquette of the room. Like everyone here is sat and no one's talking. You know, you just kind of sit here singularly and watch the screen and. You're not supposed to look around and see if the, the, there's other stuff that's going to happen. This is what's happening. And I really liked that because I felt like I was doing the work more kind of a, a service or giving it a respect that maybe I often don't do in a gallery space because I'm impatient and I want to look at lots of things at the same time. Can we talk a little bit about that focus and that concentration and contemplation because it's something which any creative is going to have to deal with the big change of the last few years is the digital revolution. Uh, so it's the one revolution no one's enjoying. Uh, the idea that these phones, that, uh, the mobile, that the internet is now mobile, that it's in your hand, that your seven minutes, my seven minute film is competing, literally it's competing with Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. or it's competing with whatever Trump has done next, which is on a news feed, which is on an alternative site. Um, has that changed your consideration of what you're putting out there? Because Jesse, you said right at the beginning, you know, you feel okay with producing a body of work and putting it onto the net where it's there amongst a whole lot of other stuff. Whereas to me, that would evoke a sense of anxiety. Um, who wants to take that first? Well, I should say maybe um, s some work, not all work, and maybe work that's specifically um, sort of vibing off that um, attention span or lack of. And that, you know, it's it's not that I think all work that I would make would necessarily suit that, but it is such a large part of everyday life, it's hard for me not to um, sort of try and play with those rules. The question about attention span is interesting because I feel it's something that we say in order to justify continually sort of fostering it in ourselves. So we make shorter and shorter work. And so what people's attention spans, my attention span is less and less and less and less. Um, Zadie, it's something about 
spinning off from what you said about durational work. I mean, would you see yourself working in a medium which uses moving image, but which actually requires that sustained attention? The last video I made was long for me. It was like 33 minutes or something, or 39, I can't remember, but I made it with the intention that people, if they felt bored, could walk in and out, because the first half is kind of non-linear, so it's more like photo, sorry, like video montage of kind of various clips that lead you along kind of a narrative, but it's not, you know, it's not imperative that you sit through the whole thing, where the second half, there's um, a narrative structure where I'm speaking a text, and it is kind of important you hear it all, but at the same time, I made it abstract enough where if a gallery viewer wanted to leave and come back, they wouldn't miss it, because I'm always thinking about that. Um, I guess, actually, a lot of times thinking about, I don't want to bore people, which actually is ridiculous because sometimes, you know, when you watch performance, it's good to be bored and sit and just kind of think about stuff and get lost and have a different response to things that are happening in front of you. Like, I think for me, because music and kind of dance and being present is so important in my work and fashion, but I have to constantly remind myself that as an artist or someone that works with performance, we're not the hired entertainment. It's not an expectation where I need to like stand on the stage and do a jig and you're completely like, you know, engrossed with that for the whole 20 minutes or whatever. So that's something that I've been thinking about recently and there's a new performance I'm working on and I'm a little bit lost because I've kind of done away with the structure and I want it to be a bit more loose and improvised which is proving hard because I also don't want to go there and look like a fool. So it's kind of balancing those two things, I think. Shatopa, let's come to you. The question's really about duration and attention and contemplation. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm one of those people that if you drop me off in a gallery or a museum at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm still going to be there at 6 p.m., basically. <laughs> and the people I've gone with are sort of, you, you know, really got bored, had lunch, blah, blah, blah. So I, I seem to have... I, I, so in other words, I'm not afraid of durational experience, whether it's in a gallery context, a performative context, or in, you know, in the context of watching something on a cinema screen. And I, I, I love all of those things, to be honest with you. And in terms of the question about digital media, how has that impacted on those questions of time and space? I mean, I think it's a very kind of, it, you're absolutely right, you know, it's, it's a kind of, it's highly problematic that there is, we're having to com complete, completely compete, if you like, um, you know, philosophy is having to compete with people like, Trump, unfortunately, in the sense of his ridiculous tweets and, you know, this constant sense of, of distraction. However, if you kind of abandon that and think about the positive end of it, at least for, for me, what it has enabled me to do is to have access through open source and other kinds of um, formats to a whole range of archival and research material that otherwise would be really hard to access. So for example, you know, finding uh, performance work by Adrian Piper 
on the digital format, Maya Darren's work, Chantal Ackerman's work. You know, recently, I Am Not Your Negro was screened for a limited period of time, um, shortly after its release. So you could watch it in the comfort of your home if you were too busy to kind of get to a cinema. And I, I don't recommend that you should see it on your laptop as opposed to going to a cinema. Definitely go to cinema and see it. But the problem with um, a lot of... Uh, um, places where these things are screened, they're so corporatized in themselves. So we don't necessarily see in those spaces, certainly in a London context, the kinds of films that we'd really like to see. So in other words, you know, 25 years ago, the Lumiere, for example, was such a fabulous space where we could see alternate independent productions much more easily. And now things have been so corporatized that actually it's been problematic in the sense that you then can use the me you know social media or whatever it is to find out where things are being screened if it's happening in a city or town near you so it's got negatives and positives i think from my own perspective i i don't relish the idea of really putting my film work on social media uh, on online if you like and I don't know if it's just that I'm a little bit afraid of that at this moment in time. I've never taken that leap, but perhaps I should after listening to you, Jesse. <laughs> we, we could spin off from that and talk about the reality of carving out and maintaining a career as an artist. It's all well and good to be really young and into art. It's all well and good to be an emergent artist who genuinely loves the practice. But then there is the, the, the real world issue of how do you carve out a career? How do you defend that? How do you make income? And it seems to me, before I come to Zadionis and then move down the panel, that on the one hand, digital makes lots of things possible. So you can find talent, you can interpolate music, it's wonderful. Editing doesn't cost anything if you download the, the program. And yet at the same time, making a living and creating a body of work is harder than it ever was because you put it on the internet and there it is floating around. It's very hard to monetize what you do and living in a capitalist world, you do need money in order to live. Uh, Zadie, how do we carve out and defend long-term careers beyond just the pleasures of creativity? I mean, I'm kind of in the middle of this, but I'll go back to what I said earlier. I really, really can't stress the importance of supporting your peers. Um, I never understood the kind of singular art star mentality when I did my MA. I found it really selfish and kind of really impossible to go up, up, up and beyond by yourself. And why would you want to be on an island alone? You'd want to kind of you know, share that success with people that you also care about and you're engaged with. For me, as I said earlier, I would not have any shows if it weren't for you know, people that I subsequently became friends with who Again, I would say 99% of the time have been women. It's just the way it is. And so for me, it's to pay it forward. If I can help in any way, friends of mine, if they need to, uh, you know, advice about how to edit something, it's just simple stuff. Or if they need to borrow equipment, they need a recommendation of what they should kind of look into for reading. If I have any kind of power to organize a show, I'll include certain people who I feel like might really benefit that. Even students that want to have a tutorial with me, I'll try to make time in order to support that. I just think you can't move beyond that. But doesn't promising work deserve 
um, institutional support and good resourcing so that there isn't this second tier of artists who are working on a shoestring in a DIY grassroots way for nothing. Well, I guess that's just lar that's speaking more to kind of uh, people that are in positions of power to provide funding. I mean, the thing that's really frustrating for me is um, how these powers that be, I feel like, you know, are largely looking at market, looking at what's cool and trendy and what's really ultimately disposable because they don't really care. And this is why I'm saying it's so important to support your peers because in the end, uh, in 10 years from now, if you are supporting the, you know, five people that were in your peer group, you know, chances are that all five of you will, will succeed in those 10 years. Uh, I don't mean to bring, there's this group of men that are quite internationally famous um, and they're from Vancouver. Well, I'm just thinking about people, I'm from Vancouver in Canada, and I was always told, you know, Jeff Wall and Ian Wallace and these guys, you know, Stan Douglas, they really support each other since they were in, you know, their BAs at Emily Carr. And, you know, subsequently they're all super, super successful, and it's because they probably stuck to each other. And I really think if you look at pockets of people who, you know, maintain those friendships, you have to support one another. Jesse, let's come to you on that. Well, those are... Those are all really good points, and I feel like maybe I'm not the best person to ask how you might aim to succeed, because it's almost ludicrous to me and always has been to the point where I, I don't really think about it. Um, it well, we can rebrand the question, and I could ask you, what is your version of success? Well, it would be making exactly the work that I want to make and always doing that. And I feel like that is definitely um, made more allowable by supporting your peers. And you know, I do probably ultimately think that good work deserves to be funded well, but it's depressing to really consider that and the, all the obstacles that are in the way. I sort of, you know, when I'm talking to A-level students and stuff, normally advocate thinking about having a job at the same time because that is what allows me to make what I want to make. Because if I'm making what I think people will pay for, and like what you were saying about, you know, funding things that are trendy, it. Is there's a possibility that the work will really suffer, and what if, I mean, it's about a life well lived creatively for me, rather than a sort of life well succeeded, which you know it's not likely anyway. Gosh, it's, I mean, it's such a complex question, and I, you know, I agree with various points that you both made um, uh, here. Um, I think you know the corporatization, the marketization of visual practice, of, you know, the f of, of, of film, uh, filmic practices um, has been, in some ways, you know, hugely liberating for those who have been fortunate enough to be at the receiving end of that. And that's very much determined by patriarchy. It's very much determined by uh, power structures that celebrate, you know, um, men's privilege um, and mainly heterosexual, male, white privilege. So, um, you know, let's not beat about the bush. That, that's, that is as, as, as happens. Um, and I think that, you, you know, if you have a look at the, success, the careers of those individuals who have been achieved to, uh, have been able to achieve great success in the, in, within that, what patronage does is enable one to be more ambitious in realizing what it is that you want to do. So, you know, fabulous that Rachel Whiteread has had as much support in terms of the nature of the work that she's been producing, not just Rachel, but uh, lots of other people. But, but it's a good example because we see her as being a public artist these days. 
Absolutely, you know. So I, I, what I think is really important is definitely to build your communities and networks of support. Um, I think that the downside of always seeing the kind of tiered star system is that we always end up hearing the same voices all the time. And I think that that's a shame because there may be so many different voices and we do see them, you know, where there's a great deal of beauty in what's being said in alternative spaces, um, on low budget films, on low budget productions, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I want to hear more of that, actually. Let's see the broadest perspective, the broader kind of narrative, the broader, the, a broader range of voices. And patronage, if only it would recognize that there is more to engaging with life and thinking about life than a quick return. Yeah. That's a perfect way into what's going to happen next, which is that we have... <laughs> We are incredibly honoured and very, very grateful that you all submitted wonderful two-minute sort of primers uh, of your work. So uh, as we get that set up, uh, I wondered if you could very briefly just talk your way into what we're about to see. Zadie, if we could start with you. Um, so the clip I gave was uh, the section of the video that I was speaking about, how the first half was kind of non-linear, just video montaged work, and then there's uh, instrumentals in the back. And I've um, worked on this project with my partner. I went to um, Jeju Island last year, which is an island off of the South Peninsula of South Korea. Okay, Jesse. I've made kind of a montage mega mix showreel of about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 different works, some of them digitally edited so that they're actually happening at the same time, which Obviously, we can't show what they are about individually, but I was aiming to show a sort of range of characters that I perform in the work and the sort of range of tones and techniques that I employ. Brilliant. I love the idea of a Jesse Jetpack's mega mix. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the piece that you're going to see today from me is uh, an excerpt from a work called Light Rain that was shot in um, a volcanic region of um, in Japan. And um, I should just say a big thank you to Beppu Art Project and to the Kashima Artists Residency and Keith Whittle and um, all those people who were amazing in supporting it. But the work is actually a kind of metaphor for, um, you know, f for female sexuality, really. Um, and it's, it's, it's a sister piece to something called matinee that I spoke about in brief earlier on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a static durational piece and it exists both as a single screen production and also as a three screen production. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, after the screenings, we would love to hear your questions and comments. Please, just one question or comment each. Keep them brief because we want to hear from as many of you as we can. I love that we could show those three clips because they really show the, your, how bold and yet how different you are as artists and they're really kind of your, your signatures. Okay, the lights are up, we have a roving mic. Please don't be shy, hands up. We're going to see who's got something to say. We have about 15 minutes, a tiny bit less. First person is the bravest. Questions, comments, even a response to what you just saw. Compliments would be very welcome too. <laughs> 
wonder if you had any advice about um, starting groups of people that can support each other, reaching out to other people that, whose work you admire and those kinds of things, because a lot of people, you know, your, your peers might not do the same kind of work as you, and how can you start those conversations and start those things happening? Um, I think it's a really good idea to contact people online and just say that you, you're interested in their work and maybe, I don't know if you want to pose a question or something, and just see if that person responds. If someone were to write me, I would absolutely write them back. I mean, like, I'm nobody, but I'm just saying I'm a person that you don't know, and if you wrote me, I would absolutely write back. Um, I also think it's really important to go to events like this or to go to openings and shows and just speak with people. I, I'm not from here. I mean, I did do my MA here, but the majority of people that I now consider my peer group, I did not go to school with, and I kind of forced myself to meet people. And I think that you'll find people equally want to meet other new people. Personally, I'm mildly hermetic, so I, I you know, don't physically maintain uh, very regularly social groups, but I'm present online, and I've been, you know, visiting different sort of unis and uh, colleges and I think that I've always remembered the strength of work that I've seen from people there and if I've really um, sort of been intrigued by a student's work I'll like write the name down and quite a few people have emailed me that way and I know that these things play out over long periods of time so you know there's there is issues of patience there um, so for me it's more like a, a long game of you know if I have an opportunity to suggest young artists then I've got plenty to do so. Yeah, always pay it forward, always suggest, and if you're invited to do something and you can't, always give other names yeah. and contact details. Yeah, um, I think I'm probably the oldest member of this panel, actually. So <laughs> I kind of think that things have changed quite a lot from the time that I, say, for example, in the 80s, um, where social media wasn't around. And I would say that at that time, it, I was, for example, I, I, I got to know Labena Himid, this year's Turner Prize winner, through going to see an exhibition that she had co-curated um, in, in Sheffield at the Mappin Art Gallery. And just through, you know, dialogue and discourse and exchange um, that I developed with her uh, over a period of time, I think I was probably the first student to ever write a dissertation that it, in part included Labena's work and interviewed uh, Labena. So that happened. You know, she was involved in curating a show. But more recently, you know, certainly as, 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 um, as, a, as someone who teaches in art school context, what I try to do is to encourage my students to go to the kinds of exhibitions that really connect with their, the nature of their practice. So, you know, they may be a painter who's interested in a particular kind of practice or a filmmaker who's, a, who's interested in a particular kind of practice or a performance artist. So I think building, trying to build networks through certainly going to see exhibitions or films, etc., that are much more connected to your own particular area of concern is important. And yes, you know, do write to somebody. I know I get a lot of inquiries and sometimes it just takes me three months to get back to somebody because in the interim there's like a, another hundred inquiries. So it's, it, it's, it's difficult and at this moment in time I'm not represented by a gallery in, 
in London, for example. So I have to deal with those things by myself, you know, and I suppose that's something else about the kind of privilege of being commercially affiliated, if you like. Um, but nevertheless, I do make, try and make an effort to respond to inquiries. And I think that that's important because there's something that binds us together as, as creatives, really. Okay, Sorry. <laughs> Can I add something to that as a horrible careerist, capitalist type person? Um, also decide what you want and go for it. So if you want to be featured in a group show at a particular gallery, get in touch with the gallery that you want. If you want to be covered by a particular newspaper, let's say The Guardian's art critic, um, put them, don't put them on your mailing list of 100 newsletters that no one wants, but you can send them a press release to your next work introducing who you are. But I think that targeted, uh, targeted approaches do actually work in a very stealth kind of way so that it's about getting your name out there and getting name recognition there so that six months down the line uh, people sort of, it resonates when you have sent your second newsletter or you're finally doing a group show that you want. Sometimes just defraying a lot of energy for years and years and years in networking at one tier ceases to pay out after a while. So I also think that as well as networking and being in the game, you have to have some sense of what it is that you want to achieve. Thank you very much. It was very interesting. I have uh, two questions. I, they're very easy. So one is, uh, do you think it's very important to have your Instagram account and to constantly like upload things and being like present constantly online? Um, that's the first question. And the second question is, um, if you're represented by the gallery, I was always wondering how it works with the moving image uh, from a commercial side. So how do you sell work? How does it work? Fantastic. Two really, really fantastic questions. Uh, social media and uh, if you work in moving image, if you work for the gallery, how does that sort of work in terms of business, basically? Uh, Less easily, I think. It's if I can take this first, second question, if you work with uh, moving image, you know, but there are success stories there. You know, Isaac Julian, albeit he's, he's male, you know, uh, gay, gay male, uh, um, and uh, he's a black male gay uh, filmmaker. So he's, he's yeah, there are, ex there are success stories. It's harder. You know, even speaking to Isaac, you know, he'll tell you that you have to raise the capital to be able to make the production and then to install it, etc. So it depends where your kind of your your kind of market is. Um, you know, Tina Garavi, who's a straightforward filmmaker. Um, you know, she has to kind of um, work a whole other system, if you like, in terms of distribution distribution net networks funding agencies, funding bodies. So it depends what you want. And I think what you were saying earlier on, actually, Padisha, is really important. You know, decide where it is that you want to be. Um, I have had gallery representation, and certainly galleries have been interested in, you know, selling work. It, it just takes a, a lot longer because depending on what your production budget is and et cetera, et cetera, it can take an awfully long time. Tate's just accessioned something, uh, for example, that I made over 30 years ago, you know, which is kind of crazy. And since this has happened, or since another uh, museum has accessioned some moving images work, things are moving in that domain. But it's, you know, I've not been interested in doing it too quickly. I've been interested in 
understanding what my work has been about. But I am at a stage in my career now where I really would like somebody to deal with that stuff, actually. And so it depends at what stage in your life you feel your work is about making something that you really are happy with and then getting to a stage where you think, well, I understand where I'm going and now it's about the selling. The problem sometimes I think, sorry, I know I'm saying something, but um, it's just that I was going to say that the, the problem sometimes of succeeding hugely when you're very young is that then you get caught in the type of work that you can only make. And I think that can be also problematic. So you have to make those decisions fairly early on and then just follow that through, I think. Um, okay, uh, social media and like Instagram and stuff. I think that if that's what you feel comfortable with, you're okay kind of doing self-promotion. I think it's great. There's so many American artists that I've come in contact with and have subsequently become super fans of their work because I've found them on social media. There's also hugely successful artists who I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be friends with some of them. They don't do anything on their social media. I know that they're on there because they look at stuff and they like stuff that maybe I put up because we're friends, but I know that they don't do anything. Martine Sims is a huge artist. She doesn't have Instagram. Everyone posts about her work because her work is amazing. And that's just it. So I think it really is about what you feel comfortable with. I personally, I like it. I like to engage with my friends. I love to see what my friends are doing. I like seeing kind of like... Um, work in progress shots. That's just me because I do like it. I have friends that don't like it and they don't want to engage and that's fine. Jesse, social media and how the heck can we make moving image pay if you're in a relationship with a gallery? Uh, well, I'm not so sure about the second question, but the first question, I was at an opening where somebody said they, they were friends with a gallerist who said they would never consider giving an artist a show if they didn't like their Instagram. You can take that I wouldn't be held hostage to that, but did it... You, did you hear the indrawn breath? Of <laughs> yeah, That's but really it's, hard. it's out there. People think that you can represent, you know, and some people can, but, you know, it's like how you collect images. Does that say something about how good you are at making art or is your Instagram just your work? I know quite a few people who would post many other artists' work and then their own and you're not entirely ever sure if it's their work or somebody else's and you could uh, get quite... Um, cynical about that kind of thing. I would never let someone, um, you know, hold me hostage to putting stuff online. But if you are creatively inclined towards it, I would say people do look. Yeah. Um, just to cap that, I uh, had a meeting with someone again, very similar, who said that if they were choosing to represent two completely the same artists, absolutely equal in terms of the quality of their work, they would go for the one who had a stronger social media following. Mm which is really shocking, it's incredibly cynical, but it answers what you were saying about how harsh the, the gallery representational world is, that they do see things in those terms. In terms of making money through moving image, making films is like throwing money down a well. <laughs> Seriously. But there are artists who have succeeded in it. So Sarah Morris makes films. Um, obviously, Sam Taylor Wood, now Sam Taylor Johnson, who's moved across from fine art to film. Steve McQueen's another obvious example. I think that what artists really do is they generate income from one form of practice and they put it into making really great films as a form of investment. Mm -hmm. And then what they get from a gallery space is maybe you can charge a little bit just to have the gallery space take on take on the screening rights. You're effectively you're licensing your film to be shown. But of course, because it's basically a dot MOV file, you can't buy it and sell it. You can't sell it. You know, it's not like Jeff Koons selling a big metal balloon dog. 
that's where you'll make a little bit of income from, but it will never be, be the star attraction unless you also sort of embrace the Hollywood system. So you make it part of your practice, mm -hmm. and you just say to yourself, well, I'm going to make the best film I can, and don't think about the profit motive. So harsh but true. Thanks, everyone, for all your comments. I just think, actually, there is a way that we can make money from moving image, just that it's very hard. I just think the comment is, is that you can addition your work as painters addition things or printmaking additions it, and you can also charge for screening. It just means it's a much longer game in terms of actually um, reaping the rewards or even if you've invested in making your film, it takes the kind of cost of covering the loss of making it and then maybe getting a profit on top of that, but I don't think you can expect it to be quick. But thanks for your comments. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that's interesting, another filmmaker, Nina Danino, said this to me, that, you know, once you really have got the bug to, to make, to work with it, you can't let it go. You know, it's something that just sits strangely in your soul, I think. And so you do find creative ways of um, working with it and around it, but... Uh, and yeah, absolutely, there are those who succeed straight away, and that's fantastic, but it is a long, it's a long-haul flight. <laughs> and this is not a new thing, just to close, yeah. I mean, artists have been complaining about not being able to make a career since the Middle Ages. We had a patronage yeah. system where you'd be given money by the king or the guild or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So this is not just a sort of crisis of 21st century capitalism. It's always been hard. It's always been hard figuring out the metrics of success and survival, but... We're going to have to close there, but I, I think that um, we would all like to thank you, the audience, for being such an amazing audience. I have a few thank yous. Amy Blewett, Kira Milner, and Jennifer Shearman at the Royal Academy for making all of this happen. We were first approached by Sarah Sassanelli, who used to work here. She now has a fabulous job at the Tate, where she's going to do brilliant things, so thank you to Sarah. And most of all, I think I'd like to thank our amazing, inspiring, and wonderful speakers and artists, Shitaba Biswas, Zadi Shah, and Jesse Jetpacks. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.